I'm going for the, the Joey Barrington like contest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, how am I doing? Joey's going for the Connor look, actually. I think that's what it's more about. I think he's seen what you look like. And I wanted to be that guy. Exactly. 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 All right, Connor. I think we are ready to roll. Hey there, squash fans, and thanks for coming back to another episode of The Breakdown with myself, Connor Malley, and my co-host, Bill Buckingham. Today, we are joined by leading squash celebrity, the master of the mic, Paul Johnson, otherwise known as PJ. He is one of the lead commentators on Squash TV and former world number four on the Pro Tour. In this episode, we kick off our R&R segment by picking our top three drinks of choice. If we were enjoying the special evening of watching our favorite match on Squash TV. Then we take a peek behind the curtain with PJ sharing his thoughts on all aspects, from what it's like being behind the mic, on the caliber of players throughout the years, and even what it's like having Joey Barrington as a roommate on the road. After the interview, stay tuned or just skip ahead to the fan follow-up and see if your name is mentioned. If you want to know the timestamps of each segment, check out the details in the description. A quick thank you again to our sponsor, Baya Sports. They are both Bill and mine's favorite squash shoe ever because they feel great and they look great. And one of those big no-nos is we do sometimes wear them outside the house just because we like them so much. So go to Baya sports.us and check out their newest force x that's b-i-a sports.us thank you again for tuning in and we hope you enjoy the show what about this this call is being recorded welcome 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 back to another episode of the breakdown this is episode number what bill connor we have reached the Pinnacle episode number 10. We are, I think, only 192 episodes behind Barry Gibson uh, for Squash Podcast. So we're getting there. We've reached number 10. We're very excited. It's, we have a great guest today. So um, shocked we reached 10, but we here we are. So let's, uh, let's do it. Each episode just keeps getting better and better. And today we're very excited because, like you said, we have a very special guest. And to give a little preview of what we're going to talk about, we're going to break this down into two sections. The first one of our ratings and rankings section, we're going to talk a little bit about booze or spirits or what brings us levity in our lives, whichever way you want it. And then number two, we're going to get into the meat of it with some squash talk. Connor, so, what, are, what are we calling this episode? You skipped that part. Is that because well, you didn't, we're you do didn't it get to the end? You, no, you didn't get to the end. I, know, but I was going to do it at the end. Afterwards. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. Right. Like at the end of the show? I was going to record it and then put it in the back. No, 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 no. This is live. Live bullets here. All right, go ahead. N- name the show. Uh, Connor, after much thought, the name of this show, with all apologies to Jim Zug, is going to be Inside the Glass. <laughs> and this, there's a little story behind that because this comes full circle with our guest. So before we introduce our guest, just know that the Outside the Glass podcast is hosted by Jim Zug. Um, the first episode ever recorded of that was actually done by Chris McClintock and myself with our guest. And we did it in a boardroom in New York with sirens wailing on the outside and uh, door slamming. And the sound was so bad it never reached air. But it was a solid hour talking about squash with our guests so this has come full circle so welcome to inside the glass all right well bill why don't you take it away (laughs) our guest uh very happy to welcome you all know him as pj his name is paul johnson 10 years he's been at squash tv and i just like to give a warm welcome and he's coming to us live from lockdown england pj 
Paul Johnson, how you doing, PJ? Well, I'm so much better now. Bill, what, a, what an introduction. I just feel such an honor. I've made double digits. We're going to episode number 10 here, which I've absolutely loved listening to, by the way. A couple of, uh, couple of great stories, but we'll, we'll get back to some of those later on, especially Bill's eating habits. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you got to take it all with a grain of salt, I do. Um, <laughs> exactly. So for the first section, what I'm going to do to set it up is um, ratings and rankings. I want us to imagine... We're about to watch one of our favorite matches on Squash TV. It's the finals we're really looking forward to. And we're trying to figure out the lineup for what beverages we might have and what order. So we're going to go around and say our top three beverages that would make the list. Who wants to go first? I think our guest always goes first. And it looks like this is on video that he might have a, a glass of something in front of him right now just to make this authentic. It is absolutely authentic, Bill. Yeah, I'm just sitting here with a, with a, a glass of... Uh... Johnny Walker, double black, actually, just a, a little afternoon. Could you hold that up for me again? Dude, What? so we'll get back to this. So what is in your glass? Uh, it's a cardinal sin. I know you're going to be kind of giving me a hard time about it already, but it's uh, it's a cube of ice, just one cube of ice. I, I, I texted you a photo of me drinking a high-end scotch over this past winter, and you gave me holy hell about having ice in it and like oh. you you shamed me basically into not Correct. putting ice Correct. in my scotch and there's a very distinct reason why because you're drinking yours in the midst of winter so in winter generally i would drink more of like a, a single malt heavier heavier kind of a scotch and you're looking to obviously warm the cockles as we say and uh, that would be to generally i'd have something more like a lafroig or like a macallan 12 which is quite heavy and i wouldn't add anything to it to dilute or chill the uh, the scotch at all. In actual fact, I would have this held in the glass and probably circle it around the rim of the glass to a actually add a little bit of heat and body temperature to the drink. Because for me, that then opens up the scotch itself. That's a long way, that long backpedal, but Sorry, that's, I, yeah. I'm buying it. I'm buying yeah, it, I guess. No, I mean, But if I was, as I am now, we're coming into the springtime here finally in the UK and uh, just about to get ready to sit down and watch some of the, the black ball matches. And just a little kind of aperitif pre-dinner, a nice shot of uh, Johnny Walker double black with a, just a, a one cube of ice. It will just open up the water a little bit and just give it a little bit of a chill. Hey, I'm on board. I just don't <laughs> like getting shamed about it, which you shamed me about it. So okay, so long as so is that an apology? Uh, no. Okay. Absolutely right. not, no. So Connor, Connor, what were we talking about? Well, so, so I'm curious, it was like, what would be in our top three order for the drinks to enjoy this match with? And would Johnny Walker make uh, the top three? Uh, certainly would, probably more towards the top of the list, uh, Connor. For me, if I was to be sitting down watching a, an evening of squash, I would probably start off with uh, maybe either a glass of a Prosecco or a champagne, possibly. Favorite champagne for me, pound for pound, I feel it's the best value, would be a, a Verve Clicquot, obviously with its distinct yellow label. Slightly drier. Some might say it's a little cliche. But... Well, or some may say cliche, some may say cliche. <laughs> but yeah, I'd go for a, a, a verve to start, maybe a glass or two of that. If I didn't have any verve, that's obviously a little bit more expensive. If I was looking for something a little bit more cost effective, uh, a nice Prosecco. Something from the Val d'Obiadene region in just outside of uh, Treviso in Venice. I, <laughs> can I just, I, I don't feel I'm prepared enough for this. Uh, we, we might need to do this another day. I was just going to say, hey, yeah, I'd like to drink a beer or an IPA or something like that. Wow. 
So talk to me about the champagne. I'm, I'm interested in this because I was privy to a conversation in Philadelphia back in 2019 when we were eating dinner at a hotel and um, your broadcast mate, Mr. Barrington, went on a, a long rambling rant about what is champagne and what is not champagne. And are you in that same realm as him when it comes to that? Or No, I'm a bit more of a straight shooter, Bill. You know, Joey likes to kind of fabricate. The, if you actually probably read up on the information well, that he gave you, it'd probably be completely incorrect. It was completely incorrect. It was 100% incorrect. <laughs> He, he was talking about the bubble, that. the bubbles floating upside down from the cup and all this kind of stuff. And I looked it up everywhere and didn't see anything about it. Champagne comes from the Champagne region in France. And anything else is basically called sparkling wine. That's correct. That's technically, that's 100% correct. Yeah. So I've actually got a little, um, a, a bit of a diamond in the rough for you here, Bill. If you, uh-huh. if you do like your sparkling wines or your, your kind of your Proseccos, I've just discovered uh, there's an unbelievable bottle of sparkling wine. But if you were to line this up, against a Verve or a Moet or, you know, something like a Dom Perignon uh, along those lines. It's, the brand is called De- uh, Graham Beck. It's a South African brand. Other brands are available, obviously. But this for me, it's £14.99 a bottle. And you can get it in some of the kind of the bigger, you call them liquor stores. We call them off-license outlets uh, here in the UK. And for me, it is the most kind of cost effective and, and best value white sparkling wine on the market so that would be kind of the area i'd, I'd be heading towards what, what does your husband drink uh he has a timria <laughs> lime and, and soda <laughs> I mean, this, this is obviously the, the start off to the evening i got you yeah, i got you so, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, top three here You're yeah saying, okay you know, so let, and let's get through all top three first, Bill, and then yeah. you can start picking them apart. All right, so we got then, we got something of the champagne yeah. region or uh, a sparkling wine. And a sparkling like wine that. of some kind, yeah. And yeah. then for me, uh, my go-to will probably be uh, Hendrix and Fever Tree Tonic. I love a, I do love a, a nice gin and tonic. That would be a go-to for me, preferably with some slices of cucumber. Now, with the Hendrix, I've always found just because of the flavor, Fever Tree is by far the best match for a tonic if you try and add in a Schweppes or a, you know other brands it just for me it just doesn't quite work out so uh, a little bit of cucumber slices in there and and then you'll be off and running um, if not maybe a, uh, maybe a kettle one and soda something nice and light for the middle section uh, before we get onto the heavier stuff as we get to later in the day and, and then that's what that's when we'll be getting to the whiskey I'm not painting a very good picture myself here but I'm like no no all good actually <laughs> I, what I, I guess I want to say is like <laughs> I wish you did as much research for the squash matches you commentate on because <laughs> like the, the knowledge you've given me on this is far exceeds anything you've taught me on squash TV I really uh, think you need to start like a podcast of yourself just talking it's through a bit each I'm, drink yeah I can find myself getting carried on I'm just getting started I, I mean I could literally be carried on you know so then you said you're rounding it out with some whiskey Yes, right? correct, okay. correct. And which, which a lot of that would stem from. I can blame my great, my, my grandfather for that. Really, on my mother's side of the family, they're from Irish descent, and my grandfather was always into his, his scotches and his whiskies. <clears throat> and every time he came over, or you know, Christmas or any kind of events, he would always have a glass of whiskey, completely neat. As we were saying, Bill, that's why I was horrified that time about the uh, the ice cube situation because. I got to an age where I was old enough to, to drink the alcohol and I, I went and did the same thing and I walked into the dining room with the glass with some ice cubes in it and he, I got a, let's say just a bit of a telling off and a bit of a, bit of a whiskey lesson. Fair so enough, said, fair uh, enough. Uh, until today. But, uh, so do you prefer Protestant whiskey or Catholic whiskey? I'm not, no comment. 
No, no comment. No comment. You know, that's a famous scene in a television show in the United States. Uh, Jimmy McNulty in The Wire goes in uh, to a banquet and he uh, orders a whiskey and they give him Bushmills and he says, that's Protestant whiskey. Yeah, where, where Jameson's is considered Catholic whiskey. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, which one on this day are you going to pick? You know, I'm going to have to go for Macallan 12, the double cask single malt. That for me is just, um, again, for the price point, I mean, it's not cheap for a bottle. I think in the US now, you're looking at anywhere from kind of 65 up to $80, depending on where you're buying it. But it, it's it's the highest quality for that kind of price point for me personally. Well, what if what if this was like a really special match? Like, where are you blowing it up then? Oh, dear. I'd probably look maybe towards a Johnny Walker blue label. I'd go... That would be about as high end as I would go. I wouldn't really look at paying anything above two hundred and fifty dollars a bottle for uh, you know for a whiskey. I don't drink Johnny Walker. What's the range? Like Johnny Walker, like red. Like could you better get a bottle of Johnny Walker for like twenty bucks and then it goes up to the two hundred? Johnny Walker in the U. Johnny Walker red in the UK. You're probably looking around fifteen dollars for for either a seventy five cl or or possibly a liter, and then you've got your you've got your green label. You got your, uh, your black label, and then you go on to your, your higher end, your double blacks, your gentlemen's, and then you've got your your, your blues, which is the the top end. Are there any other whiskeys like that that have such a, a, a diverse from low to high? Because when I think Johnny Walker, I think cheap, and then people say, "Oh, it's you know, drink the blue, it's two fifty. I was like, "Yeah, but you know, as you just said, you could get a bottle of the red for fifteen dollars. So just I don't like Lafroy doesn't make a fifteen dollars scotch. I don't believe anyways. McCallum no. doesn't make a fifteen dollars scotch, Correct. but uh, Johnny Walker does. So um, whether they're on the you know ahead of the curve when it comes to marketing that kind of stuff, I'm not sure. But it just seems odd to me that there's such a high end Johnny. It's like having a high end Budweiser. It's, it's a clever idea, isn't it? Because I think if you look at your Johnny Walker red label, your Johnny Walker green label, generally they're the kind of whiskies that people would add something to it. Like a, maybe either Coca-Cola, ginger ale or um, soda. Everybody has their own kind of preference. But I think when you go to that, when we're talking about the single malts as, as we are here and you're hiring Johnny Walkers, those you would have probably have pretty much neat. So it may be genius from Johnny Walker in as much as they're catering to a much larger audience and it all depends on your on your preference right you just never see a, a guy on the street out of a paper bag drinking a Lafroy. so <laughs> no no so if i'm gonna uh, watch a a squash match or uh, any kind of kind of sporting bet obviously beer is my first go-to the drink the wintertime drink high ipas and guinnesses and then once the summertime comes i become a very cheap 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 drunk and drink nothing but narragansett and paps blue ribbon so all with a lime in it, though. So if a little trick of the trade that I think I've taught Connor along the way is if you go to, you know, any bars in New York that where the booze is really expensive, instead of buying like a $12 IPA, you could get a, like a Narragansett on tap or a PBR on tap for like three bucks. Ask the bartender to throw a lime in it, which they'll hesitate because typically the lime is more expensive than the actual beer they're putting <laughs> it in. But uh, it classes it up and actually makes any light beer taste like a Corona which is, you know, almost twice the price. So a little tip for you drinkers out there. Always ask for a lime for any light beer. Without um, trying to sound too cheap, though. With the, well, yeah, I, I think my my my, rep, my reputation precedes me, so there is no. I'm not. I'm I'm done hiding it. There's no chance. I, I didn't want to say come out with it that bluntly, Bill. But yeah. oh, 100 the case. I am. Yes, I'm, he knows I'm, how to stretch a buck. If you know what I mean. Very good. Very good. I'm as they say, careful with my money. I'm careful with my money. Nothing That's how you put it. Exa- exactly. So uh, you know, I don't make that squash TV coin. You know, you know what I mean. So there's that. So otherwise, I'm more of a seasonal drinker. So depending on the season. Um, 
wintertime scotch and whiskey bourbon. I'm, I become a big bourbon convert, mostly this winter during lockdown, drinking a lot of uh, different kinds of bourbon. Scotch, I've been drinking a Laphroaig for probably about 10 years now. And that's always been my go-to, the 10-year Laphroaig, because the price point is really good. And to be honest with you, my palate's not discerning enough to taste the difference between a 20-year Laphroaig and a 10-year Laphroaig. I was just going to ask that, actually, because of it, there's quite a distinct variety of the Laphroaigs, isn't there? How old have you gone? And can you taste the difference between some of those? I remember Joey and I actually were at the uh, the US Open down at Drexel one year. We went to a fantastic little Japanese restaurant called Pod, which is situated next to one of the hotels down there. I can't remember what it was. And... I'd already had Laphroaig before, and Joey and I, we, we tried a Laphroaig 18. Now, I previously knew of the 10, and uh, we tried the 18, and it was so much heavier and more smoky to my... Not, I mean, again, I'm no whiskey expert, but um, it was not to a point... I mean, we had no problem drinking it, but it wasn't as enjoyable as a, as the smoothness of a 10, for example, for me. So. Agreed. That's what I find, too, when you get the higher end, uh, and I enjoy the peated whiskeys. That's really, when I drink whiskey, I like the peated ones because it's wintertime and I want something heavy. And you're right, the, the, the more expensive or the more aged it tastes, the peatier it is. So I, I kind of do enjoy that, but not enough so to spend $80 for a bottle as opposed to spending $40 for a bottle. I don't enjoy it that much. Now, someone's gifting it to me and they ask me what I like, I'm, of course, going to say, you know, the Laphroaig, throw a 20s out there instead of a 10, for sure. So so I do enjoy that. Um, during the summertime, I am uh, a rum drinker. I like my Ron Zacapa. Um, it's, you know, it, and another thing about rum, it's basically the price points are uh, probably about 15 to $20 cheaper a bottle than scotch. So you could get a really good bottle of rum for like 30 bucks, like a really high-end bottle. And if you want to spend 40 or 50 you could go that direction also. Yeah. And uh, I drink How that you, neat. You do have that neat, yeah. Drink it neat um, with a lime. Just sip it. Uh, throw, we'll throw some ice cubes again, just like you. I could I could be, you know, be a bit of a fraud and throw some ice cubes in there. I don't throw that F word out there casually, but um, <laughs> uh, I, I could throw some ice cubes in there with a slice of lime. So I, I do drink that. And in the summertime, I also tend to do dark and stormies. Which are a big drink here in New England because there's you know a lot of boating communities. I live near the water here in Connecticut, so there's a lot of dark and stormy drinkers. Which, uh, for those who don't know, is uh, Gosling's rum, uh, Gosling's ginger beer, uh, a slice of lime, an ice cube, and a dash of bitters makes up a, a nice dark, dark and stormy. So I do enjoy those also. Strange thing is, again, because as Connor knows, I like to talk about myself a lot on this podcast. Um, I I came down with COVID last March. So luckily got sick, but nothing compared to like what other people got. But I did have some uh, some weird after effects of it. Um, and uh, two of them, not really that big of a deal. I can't drink milk or eat ice cream any longer without like really suffering afterwards. So some digestive issues. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, hard, I can't just can't do it. Can't even have like a, a drop of milk in my coffee. And it just, it crushes me for like half the day. But the worst thing is I lost my taste for ginger beer. Ginger beer tasted horrible to me Still, for- Oh, you did uh, then? Are you- it, I'm still I'm I'm trying to get back into it because I went all last summer without drinking dark and stormies because I couldn't taste ginger beer. I, I my wife bought a bottle or a can and I put it in and I tasted. It. I said I think there's something wrong with this. And so I opened up another can and I poured it in. And I said there's something wrong with these. We should bring them back. And my wife tasted it and she's like it's fine. And everybody else tasted it. it's fine. It, it tasted gross to me. So um, and I couldn't get rid of that. And so I started drinking dark and stormies about two weeks ago and it's better. 
So whether it's because of maybe I got because I got the vaccine, who knows? But either either way, either way, uh, yeah, it it just kind of shines a a little light on like my life, how easy it is. The only thing that bad happened to me is I couldn't drink dark and stormies after COVID. So, (laughs) well, Bill, during that time, you said something which I want to revisit to see if it still holds true, because this was talking a little bit after you had just gotten it and you, you had lost taste and smell. Yeah, lost taste and smell. And you said, I'd rather lose a limb than my ability to taste or smell. Yeah, and, and I always feel bad. <laughs> now, was that hyperbole or was that at the time? Or where would you actually, you know, if you had to trade that right now? So just know a pinky is your limb, is a limb. So I, well, no, I, if, if I had to trade a no, pinky. No, I, would, I wouldn't call a pinky a limb. You wouldn't? No. How about an append? Did I say appendage or did I say limb? You said limb. Did I say I limb? Yeah, probably would have been hyperbole. Unfortunately, um, I don't know. I, I, that's a but tough a pinky? call. You would trade a pinky. I'd certainly, take a, trade a pinky. Uh, would trade a thumb. Um, wow. Ooh, thumbs mm, are important. Yeah, yeah. But t- uh, hey, not having taste or smell. I hadn't eaten, so I lost like 15 pounds when I got sick, and I hadn't eaten at all. And so when the time came that I finally got my appetite back, and I'm a pretty good cook. I mean, not to brag, but I'm a pretty good cook, and I like my food and. Um, I had made meatballs right before all this happened and they were in the freezer and I like pulled them out when I finally got my appetite, thawed them, put like Parmesan cheese on them on a hoagie roll and took a bite. So excited to eat like I'm hungry. And I was like, man, this tastes like shit. <laughs> and I couldn't figure out why. And it turned out I had lost my taste and, and sense of smell and nothing, ta- everything so tastes, so it was, weird. it was weird. so bizarre. And I, I finally, what I did is I, you know, obviously Nobody knew about COVID back then, like all the different things that would happen to you. So I Googled everything. And of course, everything I Googled, I ended up thinking I had. So, you know, yeah, just because hundred yeah. <laughs> percent, but that, that was a true one. So I kept a jar of garlic, um, and like uh, already crushed garlic in, in my refrigerator. And every morning I would come down and put my face in it and see if I could smell it. And finally, after like, maybe like a month, I finally got a little whiff of it. And then I started getting my taste back. Yeah. So rum, rum, I'm a big summer rum and tequila I drink year round. So um, I, I, I can't handle my tequila like I used to. Um, that's, I, that's four now. What? Uh, oh, what is it? Top, you do top three again? Top we, three. Do, do we always do top three? I try and keep a somewhat of a format. I was only have allowed I, three, Bill. You, you're showing yeah. off now. Yeah. Have, yeah. I, have I ever given the, just three when you say three or do I Sometimes always go you four? Give one and you just <laughs> <laughs> put that in three slots. Like, I'm, all right, in, so, I'm uh, interested to hear about your tequila drinking though. How would you take it? Because I'm a, I'm a big tequila fan, but only over the last maybe four to five years. It wasn't something I drank much. I, when I was a younger and a kid my only reason for drinking tequila was to get drunk and it was when you did the shots at the bar and it was generally a oh, crappy yeah. cra- crappy tequila <laughs> absolutely the case and, and same here high school college you know shooting tequila and usually it was Cuervo or something worse unfortunately they didn't have Kirkland tequila back then but um yeah now I'm I'm a sipper for sure. So I, I drink tequila two ways. I sip it with an ice cube and a lime. Yeah. Or my second favorite thing way to do it is what I call a Mexican mule, which is a takeoff on a Moscow mule. So a, a Mexican mule is very similar because so, you do use the ginger beer. So it's uh, tequila, yeah. some mezcal, some ginger beer, a lime, and some bitters. And it's a, like a cocktail. And it's uh, like a really, really refreshing cocktail. I love mezcal because, again, it has that smoky taste that, that I like in the scotch. So I just, I just, and you just do like a dash of the mezcal. So really? just pop it in there, just give it a little smoke. And then if you could find an artisanal bitters that has some heat to it, like has a little habanero or something yeah, in it, you nice. put a little eyedropper of it yeah, and it's, like it. it's a, it's a nice summer nice drink. summer drink. Yeah, that sounds lovely. I, I think like I turned Connor onto that like quite a few years back. It is very solid. And I think, didn't I turn you onto tequila? You did. Sipping? You did. 
Yeah, okay. yeah, you did. I was a, I was, you're right. I was never that person who would sip tequila and I, you turned me on. Connor, basically you've, what, what haven't you done for me? Like, <laughs> like lifestyle wise, I'm growing my hair out like you too now. So there you go. It's all come I, full I circle. I just wish, I wish Joey Barrington could see what I'm seeing on the screen right now because he would be envious of those locks. Ex- I mean, ex- they are brilliant. Exactly. Ex- exactly. So, Connor, you, let's, you know what? We never talk about you because, sure, you know, as, as you lament that this podcast has turned into about me and I know you don't like that. So let's talk about you. No, for I, I, look, I'm very receptive to uh, making sure I give the fans what they want. And it's clearly they want more buck. Um, <laughs> so I would say my top three were be in Manhattan, um, a margarita, which I will I'd mix it up a little bit with Bill's Mexican mule I've forgotten about. So I'd be torn if both were on the menu right now. But I think I'd still lean towards margaritas and then just a wine. Love wine. How would you and how would you take your margarita? I mean, all of these really come down to the mixologist, right, like who's okay. making them. And I, I, I will give props to um Bill. He's he is good at mixing up a cocktail, so he takes care of us. But the margarita, like I I do like them kind of spicy, so I like to mix it up with that. Um but my go to tequila would be Herodora Anejo. Connor, do you remember the package store up on like East uh, 80th Street? Oh, yeah. Did for some reason, like the Herodora tequila must have fallen off the back of a truck, as they say. (laughs) And because it's it's not cheap tequila by any means. The the Anejo is like in the 60s, but even the silver was like is in the 40s. And they were selling it for $19.99 a bottle for like almost like six months. And I was going in buying four. (laughs) Never ask questions. (laughs) I was buying four four bottles of tequila and hauling them like six blocks to my apartment, like up avenues and like yeah, jingling yeah. and jangling, not try to drop them. It was crazy. <laughs> yeah, but if I'm mixing it in a the anejo, sort of gets wasted in a marg, uh, in yeah. a margarita. So like yeah. the silver's fine, um, but definitely the anejo for. I spent um, um, I spent a chunk of time living up in the Boston area, and. Um, and funny story, ended up running to a friend of mine from back in the UK. Who, he owned an Italian restaurant, which was 30 second walk from my apartment. And he he had this mixologist that came in after a couple of years. And he made this, um, He called, it was called a, a fat guy margarita. And it was, I can't remember the exact ingredients that you were talking about. But when he used to put a slab of bacon and he used to leave it to soak in a, in a pack of salt so when he put the salt around oh. the rim it had a real smoky taste wow. to the salt it was wow. unbelievable fat guy margarita it was called and, I, <laughs> and they were lethal because you had such a lovely blend connor do you prefer the red or the white definitely a red wine and one of my first favorite wines was the malbec that really just opened my enjoyment to red wine but now these days like it's it's just all over the map like yeah it's really hard and it's so dependent on what's available to you because I love Cabernets, I love Simondel's, um Spanish wine, Portuguese wine. So it really just depends on what's available. Um, more, more on the heavier side there, Connor? What were you talking about there, the Malbecs and the Cab? I'm yeah, a Cab me- Surf fan personally, but... Yeah, I would do medium. Like yeah. I, I tend to shy away from Pinot Noirs or the lighter ones. Yes. However, I have had some good ones, yeah. so... Yeah, yeah it's, the Malbecs have always tasted best to me with food uh, of all the wines for some reason. And I think it's, it's that restaurant on like Buenos Aires over on the east side in East Village where they it's an Argentinian restaurant. So they serve the Malbecs yeah. um, and they, they have like pasta with it and they also have steak because I guess most people don't. And I never appreciated it that uh, Buenos Aires has as many Italian restaurants as New York City does. When people left Italy to come to, you know, to leave Italy back when immigration was um, started, they Part of them came to New York City. The other part went to Buenos Aires. 
And so Buenos Aires is a heavily Italian city. And so if you go to an authentic Argentinian restaurant, they'll not only have steaks and empanadas, they'll also have really good pastas and sauces. So um, question for you. You live in England. Um, people always, and I've been to London once, but people always tell me that the beer tastes better in a pub in London than it does a pub in the United States. True or false? <sighs> That's a really good question. Um, that's a really good question. Uh, just to clarify, I'm, I'm currently in the UK, but not necessarily because I want to be here in the UK. I'm trying to get back to the US. Uh, there's just issues with the, the US Embassy here in London where I can't get my visa appointments and my paperwork can't get stamped. But I am trying to get back as soon as possible. So um, just to felonies, felonies come back to bite you too, right? <laughs> There's no 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 uh, skeletons in this closet. Don't worry. Ah, <laughs> um, oh, the the beer drinking thing is it's just such a different environment that we have over here compared to the US. You you know notoriously in the US you guys have bars, we have pubs, and they're just generally a lot smaller, cuter, a lot more. I would say a lot more atmosphere, just because, and they're they're a lot calmer, a lot a lot quieter, and it's a very different vibe that we have over here to drink your beer. One thing I will say is in, in the States, you guys will definitely drink your beer colder than we do here in the UK. We're not, you know, we, we generally won't add a lot of ice to our drinks and and when we serve our beer, it will be, I mean, it will be chilled, but it won't be to the extent of, you know, where you guys have your, your Budweiser sometimes served just above freezing point. I mean, I'm not a Guinness fan, but I have had the only place I could managed to finish the pint was actually in Ireland. Everybody says a, a Guinness in Ireland tastes different, and it does. I can I can vouch for that. But as far as beer goes, no, there been there been no distinct difference with the taste for me. I'm, I'm no certainly no beer expert, but it would just be more for the 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 atmosphere and the environment. I was literally about to say that PJ about the Guinness because I've seen it where it does taste different, and a lot of it has to do with the brewing and the water. So the water is different in different locations, and Coca Cola experienced this um, and that's why they started making Dasani their own water to solve how it was made in India oh, versus really? England. Yeah. yeah. So Dasani is just their manufactured formula water that then yeah. allows them to repeat the formula everywhere. Last question on this subject and, and you could choose to answer this or not answer this. So um, I don't you're, like it when you um... Yeah. No, no, no. You're 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 from uh, from the old school PSA yeah. tour, yeah. Um, you know, where the modern day athletes are. You know, everything's science and fitness yeah. and health, and you know, you know, thought of putting something foreign in your body that would affect your performance is is yeah. certainly verboten for a lot of these folks. Back in the bad old days of the tour, I imagine there was probably a bit more uh, drinking, uh, a little more carrying on and carousing while you guys were on tour. So, question: If you could give me a name of the person who you'd say back in the day. Who still performed well, but hit it hardest when it came to uh, to boozing it up during tournaments? Throw a name out at me. Anthony Hill. It's yeah. Well, it's well documented. Yeah, Hilly was. Uh, I, I absolutely hated playing him. God, he was so talented, so talented. Um, mentally f fragile, um, shall we say, but so naturally gifted. And even when you were playing him and you were on top, he would have periods where he just gave up and he'd stop trying. And even when you were heavily up in a game, you always had that fear that if he suddenly clicked in and decided he wanted to play, he had the ability to come back and, and beat you. But Hilly actually was a little bit older than me. So we talk about the golden era, your Jahangis, Janshias, you know, Ditz, Rodneys, and all of those kind of guys. I was ever so slightly post that era. Hilly was in that era. 
And that's when the top eight in the world at that time were arguably the top eight best players of all time in any particular era. Hilly was kind of on that interim between 12 and, and eight, flittering around that kind of area. And I think he he made a, a, a very good job of having a very good time because he was never quite in that top group of players, but he would always get round about quarterfinals and those kind of um, stages in the tournaments. But he, he made it his point that he, wherever he went he was going to enjoy himself and I, I think if you were to ask him he will probably have no regrets but he, <laughs> were, he was the man who he would have ticked all the boxes this is a good transition into just the the kind of squash portion of this and I'm going to start off and Bill has a slew of questions but I've got a burning one for me you have obviously been part of squash tv since the genesis since the beginning and adding that commentating flavor that so many people worldwide are just thoroughly enjoy in fact we've had people uh, say they'd rather just listen to you and joey than even some of the matches going on but you know you obviously put yourself in the front lines and you get a lot of feedback and i'm curious what has been like fair feedback that you've actually taken and tried to incorporate and then i also want to hear the converse of like what's not fair and please stop asking (laughs) (sighs) that's a really hard question it's a really hard question to answer because Generally, during a tournament and while we're commentating, Joey and I will try our best to stay away from the social media. We try and we we'll, we'll may post things ourselves, but whoever you are, whatever you do, you're always going to get a few keyboard warriors who, regardless of who's out there commentating, will come back with some extremely negative um, comments and remarks. But we tend to know who those people are, so we won't really go down. And when we read the complaints, they don't always make that much sense, so you're not always too sure about the kind of person that you're dealing with. So we don't necessarily get involved. Um, in no, just something that you've internalized. When I very first started out, I think it was purely exuberance that I just wanted to keep talking. <laughs> Whenever there was a match playing, a little bit of lack of experience and a uh, there was actually a, a famous commentator who had listened to some of our work, uh, Joey's and my work, and he just said, reel it in a little bit. He said, the content that you two, this, the chemistry is obviously there and the, 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 the content's great, but there's times when it's just a little bit of overkill, when you, you just feel like you need to be talking, when just let the game unfold and let it play in front of you. And that was probably the biggest lesson that I remember learning and it because but it was hard you know it's hard you've you've one of the really difficult things about the commentary is you've got so much going on you've got the producer in your ear you've got your headphones on you're you're watching or you're listening to joey or your 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 fellow commentator you're watching the match live on the screen but then you're also watching the monitor which is what the spectators and the viewers are seeing at home and you've got to try and process all of this information and trying to keep a tabs and a track on of everything that's going on it it was i mean now it's okay but the first couple of years it was it was really tough so on top of that you don't want to miss anything you want to give as many people as much information as you can so it was a bit of a juggling act yeah i could see that i mean there it sounds like so many different streams that you have to process at once that yeah it's a lot to take on yeah it was a lot and and then what's the um what's the like the fan feedback like just stop asking me i'm not gonna be able to change that (laughs) Well, well, one of our biggest kind of fan bases would be the um, on Facebook. There's a group called Squash Stories, 
and I typically more so than Joey have posted a, quite a few comments. I like to interact with, call them the fans or the viewers or the, the squash TV viewers, just to kind of get them involved a little bit and give them a sense of as much belonging to the tour and like a bit of a connection between the pro players and the, you know, the club players, because they're, they're a massive part of it. Um, you, you'll always have people asking questions behind the scenes of, um, is there any cheating going on as, 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 as any stories that we can divulge or there's always people trying to get some inside information as to what's going on behind the scenes but nothing <laughs> nothing major no i remember there was a a thread not long ago where people were talking about that this player is too nice and they didn't have a competitive edge and they didn't have a mean part of them and maybe that hindered them on court and um Ong, you were like Zong Beng he from malaysia i remember the i remember the the thread and and people were like no this person was too nice and i think i i then relayed a story to you about rami ashore like screaming his head off at me in the lobby <laughs> of a hotel during the u.s open and uh and just like it's not something i would put on a on a well i'm putting it on a podcast right now so i guess it's <laughs> it may be not as any listeners but yeah i mean i i saw stuff like that and there are people who don't really have that inside view that you certainly have and that that connor and i also have of the player to see the warts and all basically yeah, you, you see these guys kind of firsthand and, and, and in the flesh. Um, and that, that's a perfect example because you'll have not to undermine them by any stretch of the imagination, but the, the average club player will just see and view things very, very differently from, from the pros and, and you guys that are kind of on the ground. So their concepts sometimes of certain players and situations, uh, it's very hard for you to sit there and listen to it because it's they're so far wrong. So on that vein, uh, to make it a little more personal, um, yeah. you and Joey, you guys room together at, at tournaments. You guys spend a lot of time together at tournaments. Uh, I know Connor and I, when we worked together and worked events and worked things, would be at each other's throats by day two. I mean, I'm talking like Connor and I's friendship. Like if Connor wasn't such a nice person, we would not be speaking to each other right now because believe me, I am not that nice of a person. Yeah. And I have told Connor to go F himself so many times and hung up the phone and that kind of stuff with him. It's countless. So do you and Joey ever get into those knockdown, drag out type of things? And then have you ever brought it to the booth where you guys aren't speaking to each other basically when you sit down to announce a, announce a match? <laughs> So, I mean, it sounds like I'm the Connor in uh, Joey's and my relationship because I'm kind of the peacekeeper. Joey has a serious case of um, hangriness. If he hasn't had any food, if he's not been fed or watered, or if he hasn't had enough sleep, he is like the most volatile uh, and difficult teenager you could ever imagine, which is probably what you're dealing with a bit, Connor. So I do, I do sympathize. But the good thing with Joey, he just needs sometimes a bit of an arm around the shoulder. You know, we hug it out, let it go. And then the second that we go on air, back to your, your, your further point, Bill, we're on. So the, the second that the on-air button comes on <clears throat> in the commentary booth, it's all back to business. And then it's all done and dusted and all forgotten about. Has there ever been a live mic situation where you guys like said something to each other that was a little untoward and it got picked up? No, I'm, I'm so fortunate to say thus far that we've been... got to knock on uh, wood or something. <laughs> yeah, sorry, knock on wood there. Um, believe it or not, that Joey and I, in, in as, as crazy and as stupid as we can be and behave sometimes, when we're working and we're doing our commentary, we're, we're pretty professional, yeah. So when you're not there and like, so right now they're out in Egypt and I, so I don't know what the rooming situation is, so I won't guess, but uh, well, well, due, just to, just to tell you, just to fill you in there due to the, the COVID situation, everybody's individual rooms. 
Ah, okay. So, so yeah. if they weren't in like Lee Drew got thrown into a room with Joey, how how long would Lee last before he like said, "Hey, uh, I'm going to pay for my own room." Fifteen minutes. Okay. <laughs> that's the that's the under over on that fifteen minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fifteen minutes. I mean, Joey's Joey. I mean, I'm going to love him to death. He's my best buddy, but he is the least domesticated, messiest, most selfish <laughs> room person you could ever ever imagine. So you know you'll you you'll get up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom. The doors will be banging. The lights will go on. He'll go in. He'll flush the toilet. He'll get up in the morning. He'll go to the gym. I rarely go to the gym when I'm away. He'll come back. He'll have his workout, and then he'll have his sweaty kit just hanging on the string across the the uh, the shower rail. He gets out of the shower. He'll dry himself on the tiled floor. I mean, it's literally a, you know an accident waiting to happen. Um, but the irony is, if you go to his house in Glastonbury, he's got this beautiful house that he's designed and built. You could literally eat your food off of the floor in the kitchen. It is absolutely immaculate. So it's just when he goes away, he doesn't care, and he's he's, you know, he's just a slob. Another question I have, and again, you could bust this myth, and I do see this a lot. Uh, question on the on this, you know, squash stories and those other uh, Facebook sites. So a lot of the places that you guys um, do matches at are small. Think TOC. Think yeah. like where your broadcast booth is located at Drexel, uh, in proximity to the replay ref. And when the replay ref is watching the replay, and you and Joey are commenting on it at the same time, several like I, I know in certain places they could hear you. I just know that's a fact. So are you guys cognizant of that? Do you think you influence them uh, when it comes to their decisions? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Bill. And when the video ref first became part of Squash TV, which I think has been absolutely brilliant, by the way, it's a, it's a great idea in theory. Um, the referees would be sitting watching their monitors because of the situations of the commentary area. They would be sat right next to us. And early on, I think, Joey and I, or whoever was commentating, would be passing judgment on the, the situation in front, and it did influence the decision of the VR. However, two things have happened. First of all, they've now tried to make it their kind of place to move as far away from the commentary uh, mics as possible, so they can't hear what we're saying. They also are wearing headphones now, so the noise is muted as much as possible. And because notoriously we don't always get the decisions right, I don't think they have as much bearing on the decision that the VR would make now. So they, they're doing their best to make their own decisions regardless of... That's not always possible, but for the most part, that's what they're trying to do their best to create. A situation where they're very different and they can't hear what we're saying. So, got it, yeah. got it. Um, w- one other question I have, and then I'll let Connor jump in, is so you guys uh, do something that, that I don't agree with, and I think I've said on this podcast a couple times, um, you guys make predictions of who's going to win the match, which um, sporting announcers in the United States never do if they're going to do the, the broadcast. Do you feel that when you make a prediction that it colors your... Um, your analysis of what's going on on the court. So you say, you say, you know, Mustafa Saul is going to beat, I don't know, um, Dasuki and calls are going a certain way. And you've made this prediction and your kind of credibility is on the line. Do you feel that colors how you call a match by predicting it? And because it, whether it does or doesn't, what are your thoughts on predictions and whether it's proper for you guys to be doing that at all? I personally think it's improper to do so. I, I, I agree with you on that. I, 
I don't really pick and choose favourites on the tour and I don't like being put into a position where I have to pass judgment where it will look as though I'm favouring one player as opposed to another. Um, Not to throw him under the bus, but if you look at who asked for the predictions, it is primarily Joey. He likes to throw that bit in there for a little bit of fun. I know that at times, I know um, Noor El Tayeb made a comment about it in one of her post-match interviews where (laughs) every time she'd played and I'd predicted that her opponent was going to win, it actually motivated her even more to go out and, uh, and prove me wrong. So I personally don't like doing it. I would rather we didn't. And from a player's standpoint, I think if I can think back to to when I was playing, I'm not saying it would bother me, but it just wouldn't be that great if I knew that the commentator up there wasn't backing me or didn't have any faith in me as a player. So, yeah, I mean, but if I'm coming into the sport and I kind of want to have an orientation of like, who's going to win? If I don't know anything about what's going on in the match, then I think it's okay if the commentators sort of color that in for us. Yeah. Do they do that in tennis, though? They may choose a player that's possibly in form or played well in previous rounds or who who looks good at the moment. But to put somebody on the spot and ask for a flat out result, I just think I think it's a bit harsh on the on the players themselves. I would be a more a fan of, you know, as I said, highlighting these the strength areas that the players are, are notorious for. And, and how they've been playing that particular week to then lead it into things to look for while they're playing rather than have somebody there then, cause, because what can happen, um, Connor, I've had a few tournaments where my predictions have been way <laughs> off for one reason or another. And then you get the comments on, the, you know, do these commentators really know what they're talking about? Yeah, well, I think this is going to get highlighted even more um, as Bill and I have talked about, like with gambling coming in, which I think will be such a huge game changer for the sport. Um, yeah as it will in many cases. And that will just highlight kind of your the, the roles that the commentators play. I wonder if there'll become instruction from above to tell Joey that that's no longer allowed once gambling is like more pervasive in the United States and more pervasive in, in, in the game. I know they still, they do bet in England and they do bet in other countries, but when betting becomes a th- really big thing, whether they'll say, hey, look, you can't you can't make predictions anymore because it definitely people could think that you have a bet on it and you, you could influence. If, you, if you're not influencing the call, then you that's may true. influence a future call. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a that's so, a that's a huge point. Yeah. So, so uh, with the the tour, um, somewhat in in swing right now. Um, black balls going on as we speak. It'll be over by the time this comes out. Um, but but give us an overview of where you think the PSA is, is right now as far as strength of players. The women's have lost Tyeb and El Wilili. Um, the the men still seem to have the same usual suspects at the top. There doesn't seem to be much change. And whether that's a good thing, a bad thing, and and just your thoughts on on where the PSA tour is right now. I, th- I think the women's game is as good as it's ever been. <clears throat> I think the bar that was raised by Raneem and Nora Tayeb with Shabini in the mix has taken the it's ascended the game to new heights. That it is really drawing up this next core of players. You uh, you got the, the Malaysians, Subramaniam, um, El Hamami. She won the black ball, I think, at the end of last year. She's she's breaking her way through. Kemi Serm still hanging in there. I, I, I feel, but the standard that they're playing at, if you compare it to even three years ago, four years ago, it's just so much more attacking, so much more dynamic, so much better to watch. The introduction of the lower tin has obviously been a massive part of that. I think with the tours collaborating, has encouraged the, the women to watch a lot of the guys play. They get the opportunities to train with 
uh, a lot of the guys now, which wouldn't have happened. It didn't happen in my particular era. The, the, the tours were kept very much sort of separate. So they're training similar to, to how the men are training. And I think that's why we're seeing what we're seeing at the moment. And th there's a, a huge buzz around around the late. I mean, what Shabini's still doing, and, and she's still relatively... Still um, doing. Yeah, yeah she's she's uh, she's 25 years old. I it's mean, it seems little. she seems like she's 40. I mean, I she watched, has been around watched, so long. I watched her play at her first British Open. I think she was 15 or 16. And you could tell that she had some serious ability and talent. I never knew it would escalate into this, the, the career that she's had. Um, obviously a massive loss with uh, Walili uh, and, and Tayeb. Um, it's been sad to see them go, but it's left a bit of a, a window for, for these, these new girls coming up. So I think as far as the ladies game goes, it's as healthy, as exciting as I can remember in, in throughout my career. Uh, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think these the tour kind of goes in ebbs and flows where you have i mean they're arguably two of the greatest players to have ever played the on the women's side and sure. you know on the men's side i mean think of when shabana started retiring um he had jonathan power retired peter nickel like when the greats retire from the game it leaves holes in Great. that for others to come through yeah so yeah, I, yeah and i think pj too um the depth is certainly there on the women's side and I can't wait for for more to join the ranks. But but yeah. the que question I have though is when she's on and when she's fit and, and well physically fit and not injured, can anybody beat Sherbini? I mean, is she beatable by any of the players that are currently out there when she's when she's playing her best against somebody else playing their best? Can she be beat? Short answer, no. I, I don't think so. I've seen I've seen Shabini. I mean, one of the most um, most unbelievable performances I saw. I know she had a bit of a, a, a mental block against her, but Walili played her in Chicago last year. I think it was two years ago, possibly. And uh, she was full of cold. She was about to go in for a knee operation or she'd had the knee operation. This is Shabini. And she still managed to turn Walili over. Um, her ability to play the big points well is, is up there with the very best in the game. Very best in the game, and I, I, I think at the moment with the, with the group of players that are coming through, on any given day, I still feel that Shabini's got that extra gear, the experience, the strength um, to overcome any of that. The, the player I'm really looking forward to seeing if she blossoms is El Hamami. I think she's shown some unbelievable signs very early on. Just the way she's built physically, she's nimble, she's mobile, good demeanor, uh, technically very sound. And not to compare, but she plays a, a man's style of game. She's very dynamic and attacking. And if those things with a little bit of experience and a bit of strength and she keeps herself uh, level and she has a good group of uh, a good team around her, I think then the world's her oyster because she'll come into a phase where as she's coming up, Shabini will start to then tail off. There'll be a few battles in, in between. But once she gets over that hurdle, I think it could be hers to to then run with. And on the men's side, um, you know, we're still looking at uh, you know looking at black ball right now. That the usual everybody says you know these players are up and coming, and there's new players coming in. But in the end, we're still sitting here looking at a quarterfinal that has the the usual suspects in it. Which I mean, not necessarily a bad thing in my estimation, because although it's just like the NCAA tournament, everybody wants upsets and they they want the number one seed to lose and they want this to happen. But then come the semis and the finals, do you really want to watch like Joel Macon play? Um, I don't know. Not Farag, not Moman, yeah. not not El Shabagi. Do you really want that kind of matchup of Dasuki Macon in your final, like to draw people in? In my opinion, you don't. I mean, you want the stars to be there. 
no, I, I agree with that, um, Bill. But if you look through, I mean, the Black Ball Tournament, obviously in Cairo, if you look through the draw and just the dominance of Egyptian players right the way from top to bottom, there's hardly any foreign flags in there. We've got through to the, the quarterfinals now and it's the top eight seeds with the exception of Gawad, the number five seed who didn't make it through. But this seems to be the pattern we're seeing the top eight seeds for the most part, maybe one upset, upset every now and again where you're seeing those players and, and it's as great as it is of an advert for Egyptian squash and credit to their system and their coaches and everything else. From a production standpoint, if you've got the same four flags on the semi-finals board in the men's and the women's events, tournament after tournament after tournament, it does get a little bit monotonous and we do need a change. I'm just not sure where that change is going to come from right now. You've got the likes of Joel Makin that you're talking about. You've got Elias coming through, hopefully from South America. He's still got some work to do there. But Gautier now, he's still playing a great level at 38, but he's sadly on his way down. He got taught a lesson by Paul Cole, I felt. Um, Paul Cole. Paul Cole's the, the one you can throw in the mix. You've got the Kiwi, which is an unbelievable effort from from him to, to be up there mixing it with some of these Egyptians. But, I mean, what an unbelievable team they've got. You just, Ali Farag, Mohamed El Shabagi, you've got, Gawad, Moman, Tosuki. I mean, they could probably win the world championships with their B team. Right, right. And that's so, the problem that you've got. You look through the PSA world rankings and see how many players there are from Egypt. It's it's frightening for the rest of the tour, really. What I do like about the Egyptian playing style right now, they're, they're very, um, it's very diverse, though. They all have a very attacking style. They're very athletic, but they're all, they're not playing the same game in my opinion. You're 100% right. But I, I still think there's a bit of a misconception. Some people get, you know, you have the English style, the French style, the, the Egyptian style. If you actually break it down, the players that play within those countries, they still play pretty differently. You can't compare Nick Matthew to James Wilstrop. You can't compare Declan James, exactly. to, you know, to Adrian Waller, so on and so forth. You look at the French, okay, you could say, yes, arguably they're, they're all great movers, but nobody plays like Greg. You know, Gregoire Marsh plays nothing like Castanier. And then, so you, you then, you look at the Egyptians. Um, the system that they have there, and this is why I think they're so successful. Technically, they're all so very different. And even tactically, they're very different, but they just know how to play. And from a very young age, I think they've been introduced to a match play situation where they've had to learn sink or swim they, they've got to figure it out and if they don't they're going to get left behind and and that's something that's ingrained in them for from a really young age there's so many different you know technical styles but they all know where they're trying to put the ball and they know how to construct a rally and that's you know. but if we zoom out and and pj you, you know this way better than an eye so i'm quickly outside of my depth here but i mean there's a period of time where you could say the this same thing was true for the pakistanis or even the english right Correct. where I mean, look at the rankings. Was it in the late eighty, in the late nineties, or, or uh, mid eight, mid eighties? Where yeah, it was like, I, look how many Englishmen there were in the top thirty. So, yeah, you know, over, I think over, the, over over ten of the top twenty in the world, I think, were from England, and then before that, yeah. you you had the Pakistani dominance. So we're in the Egyptian dominance for sure, and I think it's going to be. You know, I'm I'm excited that the um, with the U.S. women's team, it's going to take a long time to get to that level of dominance, but at least we'll be competitive where we haven't been, you know, to the stature of England or France there. Like, we're going to get there soon. 
Yeah. Um, so I, I have one last question for you about the PSA tour. And although he is Egyptian, the biggest rising star on the PSA men's side is uh, Mustafa Asal. Uh, he, he's a, a hot button topic. I, I know your thoughts on him. I see him. I want you to give them here, though, your thoughts on him. And also contrast him because I, I don't see the difference. Uh, and again, I'm not as learned uh, as you are about this, but I don't really see the difference in his behavior from Gaultier's behavior to be honest with you. And I think Gaultier gets a pass as being like the general. And the, I, I wonder if there's a tinge of racism there where Assal is really getting hammered by people where he, to me, he acts like Gaultier acts. They're, they're, they're almost like the same, you know, it's not the same style, but as far as behavior, it's very similar. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind commenting on that. Um, Assal, he's obviously a, 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 phen- a phenomenal talent. And just to cast your minds back a little bit, I don't know if you can quite remember, but when Omar Mossad first first came out onto the tour nobody ever disputed his ability and his talents but he got a reputation for being aggressive physical i'm I'm not going to i'm not going to use the word cheat but he would you know maybe block or get and this was his reputation this is not my take but this is the reputation he had and as a result of that the players picked up on it and then they would voice their opinions to the referees therefore the referees then started to hammer him for it so as soon as there was any slight situation where they felt Mossad had moved or done something in a certain way because of that reputation, he, he got hammered for it. This was early on in, in Mossad's career. Then I felt as though when he started to experience a little bit of success, that reputation kind of diminished a little bit. It, it was almost as though the monkey was off of his back. He had proved to himself and to everybody that he was good enough to play at the top of the world number three, got to the world championship finals in 2015, that he had arrived. And it was almost as though it was a bit of exuberance when he was younger and a bit of um, sheer just desire to get to that level that created him to be a little bit feisty or encouraged him to be a bit feisty on the court. I'm seeing an almost identical situation here with Assal. I think that Assal technically, tactically, physically, he's probably physically a little bit better than uh, Mossad, but as far as a heavy ball strike and his, and his technical prowess, I mean, he's such a, an awesome talent. To I'm, I'm really intrigued to see how he, he evolves, but I, I feel as though he's gone down that same path a little bit as Mossad. Now, you talk, you compare him to Gautier. I think one of the things that stands out, that's blatantly obvious, Bill, is the size difference. So if you've got some guy that's big physically and can throw their weight around the court, if there is a little bit of a physical contact or a shoulder or a leg that gets left in the way, that's going to have more of an impact and, and look more obvious to somebody like a Gortio who's probably a little bit more clever, a bit more subtle. Although some of those little traits and the quirks of Greg previously, possibly getting the leg in the way, got noticed. What's happened now, unfortunately for Massal, you got to remember the kid's 19 years of age. You know, when he beat Paul Cole and he had the, the celebration that many thought was over the top. He's just a young kid and he's beating the number four player in the world. He's got all the pressure of the, 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 the pressures of playing in Egypt and the sponsors and everything else. So that again, that was just that exuberance flying off the handle. But now the referees, for me, are refereeing him on his reputation, not on the actual situation that's taking place on the court. I saw two really, really harsh conduct strokes against him at the Black Ball tournament and he wasn't at fault for either one. I'm not saying he hasn't done it previously, but in this particular scenario, because of what people had said about him in the past, he'd been stamped 
too firmly on for this particular situation where in actual fact he didn't he didn't do anything even remotely uh, aggressive or naughty so that's the problem that he's going to he's going to come up against and not to belabor this point, and, and again, I, I hate to, uh, we, 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 we don't want to get labeled the anti-Gregory Gaultier podcast because we have talked about this quite often on this podcast. So, so what, what would be, the, what's the difference between a Saul throwing his shirt into the audience and doing his, you know, his soccer thing where he holds his fingers up to his eyes and Gaultier at the TOC doing a split and like breakdancing? Like, like what, what's, what is the difference in that? Because I, I don't see the difference. If one's unsportsmanlike, the other one is. But yeah, with, with Gaultier, it was always like, man, he's, he's just a character out there where with a solid no, you know, that's unsportsmanlike and somebody's got to put a stop to that. And I don't really see any difference other than the fact that a Saul's Egyptian and that Gaultier is not Egyptian. I'm good. I think you got a very good point. I, I thought Gaultier's performance in that match um, – and I'm a big, big fan of Greg's, and what he's done for the game is is unbelievable. What he's achieved is is nothing short of miraculous. But his behaviour in that particular match against Mohamed El Shabagi, when it was the Long John Silver scenario, um, as a squash purist, I thought was unacceptable. Greg wears his heart on his sleeve, and he's he's a winner all cost. He's a winner. Greg's a winner, whatever whatever way you want to put it. He's a winner all cost kind of guy, and he would have been willing to do whatever it takes to get the win. And I think the celebration that came with that at one stage, he's up and he's kind of humping the front wall, and then he's gone down into the splits. And as a, as an ex pro, I thought it was a bit embarrassing, but. I spoke to a fellow uh, friend of mine, Adam Tellerby, you may know, is a squash coach in sure. the States, and he was there entertaining a couple of clients of his. They enjoyed it, but they weren't particularly squash savvy. So I understand exactly where you're coming from. I thought it was a bit, a, a little bit uh, unsportsmanlike and a little bit unnecessary, as were the celebrations of a sale. Both very similar, both, both inappropriate. Well, one of the closing questions I have for you, uh, PJ, is yeah. you guys, um, you and Joey, and the rest of the crew do so much uh, to also like hype up the sport and you guys get drawn into certain segments whether it's post or pre or doing special fun things and i wonder what skit or segment over the past 10 years has rises to the top as being the most fun to do batman and robin <laughs> it, it, it even makes me laugh now thinking about it it was um joey as you well know he's he's the biggest kid out there he's he's a marvel's comics fan and he's always loved his superheroes and it just came about randomly um world championships the walter family very generously putting on this million dollar event it's going to be in chicago's you know the home of batman and he just had this idea that he said you fancy doing a you know a bit of a skit bounced a few ideas back and forth. I thought it was all a little bit of a joke and nothing was going to happen. I'd flown, I'd flown in from Chicago, got into the hotel. <clears throat> Joey had already arrived. He came in from the UK. As I'm about to put my uh, hang my suits up for the rest of the tournament, I, I just had the Batman and Robin outfits hanging up, <laughs> hanging up in the closet. Yeah, uh, what was the debate like to see who was going to be who? I, I, <laughs> there was, there was no, no debate. debate. <laughs> there was no debate no question about no that. chance no uh, chance um, and the whole thing from start to finish was just you know we have to remember as well it was middle of february in chicago and we're running around outside trying to do these clips in sub-zero i mean i can't remember how cold it was but it was like minus 12 minus 15 
and obviously neither of us are, are kind of actors of any any sort of magnitude. There was enough takes to, to say the least, but just the fun that we had doing that, and to see Joey get as excited as he did over a skit, and and not only that, the the attention that it brought to the tournament was by far by far head and shoulders above anything else that we've done. Yeah, for sure. It was, it was sure. awesome. It was absolutely Pe- awesome. People still remember it. So so you're you're locked away in uh, England right now. What does your, uh, your future look like as far as, far as you doing tournaments? Uh, we haven't seen you on PSA TV, obviously not out in the Egypt, the, uh, Egypt tournaments. What's your schedule look yep. like? When so will we see PJ next in the booth? The next event for me hopefully will be the British Open. Um, we've got the, there's a provisional calendar that's just come out on the PSA world tour that we're, that we're looking at, um, a couple of events that spring to mind. We've got, um, British open, can't remember the exact dates. There is an event potentially out in Mauritius. I obviously put my hand up for that one pretty pretty quickly. I don't know that's how that's going to bode, how well that will bode, but, um, world championships, obviously back again in Chicago, um, later in the year, and then we'll see how the calendar unfolds. I think there's talk of a US Open. Mr. Nimick has just announced the 2022 TOC will be back in January. Nice. Well, yeah. we look forward to it. Um, we appreciate your time. Been my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on. I've had a great time. All right. We look forward to hearing you uh, soon, and uh, look forward to seeing you in person soon. Thanks, PJ. All the best. All the best, guys. All right, man. Cheers. Hey, quick time out to hear a word from our sponsor. Biosports shoes are designed for racket sport players by racket sports players with the knowledge that if a shoe can withstand the rigors of squash, then it will have no problem holding up for any other indoor court sport. No matter what your sport, the Bia Force X is the performance shoe of choice for competition at the highest level. So it would mean a lot if you go to biasports.us. That's B-I-A sports with an S dot U-S. Check out their website. But even better, take their new Biaforce X for a test drive. I'm trying to think how I'm going to cut this up to, there may be no intro. Yeah, that's very fair. That's very fair. A lot of that intro is going to have to be cut anyway. So what we talked about, because a lot of it was just nonsense talking about our hair and stuff like that. So, okay, fan follow up. Let's go. Bill, welcome back to fan follow up. Truly your favorite segment. Is this like you've done a lot of segments over your life, but is this now your favorite ever? It's, it's at least in my top five of segments of my life. Um, I can't name Wow. It. Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, I think this is the ninth fan follow-up we did because we probably couldn't have done fan follow-up after episode one because, you know, there was no fan follow-up. We've been a little not totally consistent because we, we didn't do it for the first couple. But yeah. Do you want to talk about PJ's uh, off-the-mic uh, comments? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Before we move on, just just a just thanks a, for the reminder. No, oh no, my God, no problem. Just a little controversy that we'll probably have to solve by having Joey on. So, <laughs> so to give the reference of this off the mic, and I'm so bummed I wasn't still recording. Was PJ addressed the question of you diving into Joey Barrington's food? Yeah. Yeah, so so I think it was during our pizza episode when we were talking about uh, my quirks and, and different things, and I, I brought up the fact that I like to uh, sample other people's food, which a lot of the people who listen to this podcast were, were a bit aghast by. Um, but in we did describe in that episode me having dinner with Joey Barrington for the first time and asking him politely if I could try what he was eating because it looked good, and him uh, begrudgingly doing it and being kind of tortured by it for the for maybe for the remainder of his life. So PJ obviously had heard that 
that episode and reached out to Joey to get the Barrington side of things. And his side of it was, uh, go ahead. Well, you you heard what he said. It sounded like you didn't even ask and just dived into your his plate with a fork right away. Well, I, I think I think PJ established that Joey embellishes and that Joey sometimes just says things and they're not may not may or may not be truthful, which you know I could identify with because I certainly do the same thing. Uh, he said that Joey said that he was taking a sip of his beer. And while he was taking a sip of his beer, he saw my fork go over to his plate without asking and take food and then say thank you. And he looked at me like I had nine heads. Absolutely not the case. I said, Joey, can I try? Would I? Would you mind if I try this? And Joey may or may not have been drinking, but Dave, Joey definitely gave me the go ahead. So if Joey's saying that's not the case when uh, we have... Uh, We'll inevitably have to have Joey on the show uh, at some point because right now there's, as they say, there's three sides to every story. There's, there's, uh, he said, he said, and the truth. So, so yeah, I, I think it's actually somewhere in between. I did say with PJ that I think that you were almost touching his food, fork in hand, right there, ask for permission. Is what I think happened. Not the case. Not the case at all. Especially with strangers, like a stranger. Plus, I was at a table of like all the PSA TV guys. No, I've seen you do this all the time. (laughs) Strangers, no strangers doesn't mean anything. All right, we'll we'll let the jury decide. We'll we'll have to set the record straight. That'll be a big. We we won't. We won't prompt it. We we will have him. You know what? We'll have Joey on and just ask him that question and then cut him off, and that'll be it. It'll be a one question podcast. A new maybe a new podcast. One question with Joey. So um. Fan follow-up. So we've had a, a, a couple uh, people reach out, a couple good ones. Uh, one of our biggest fans, uh, Ricky from Philadelphia, always gives uh, comments on the podcast. Let me give a quick preface because I was like, sometimes we get feedback, and I actually thought his was brilliant. <laughs> like, really good comment. And, uh, yeah, so wh- why don't you read it? Yeah, his, his was really good, and I've actually passed this on because he does mention Lee Drew, uh, the PSA announcer who, who helps a lot with the officiating with the World Squash Association, uh, the World Squash officiating. And so I actually passed this email on to him. So he says one thing that resonated. Did you take all the credit or did you? No, no, no. I, I did say it came from one of our podcast listeners. So it made it seem like we have a huge wide audience. And this is the one that I cherry picked. We're global, man. <laughs> we are global. We are global. That is for sure. So um, Ricky said the one thing that resonated from the interview with Rich Wade was a comment about how good Lee Drew is at explaining ref's decisions when commenting. I think in general, he's the best commentator of the bunch, which I also forwarded to Lee Drew because I knew that, you know, once you read that, it's gonna he's definitely going to read the rest of it after that, correct? So that being said, watching the black ball open, I thought the PSA could further leverage squash TV to educate the public. I would love to see a small pop-up after a decision is made explaining the rule. This could apply to lets, strokes, no lets, injury timeouts, and other lesser known rules. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things. It's That's where sometimes being too close to it, we miss the obvious ones. So mm-hmm. I, I applaud Ricky for thinking of that. So th- there is one other part of this email, which, Bill, I think we need to call out. Uh, go ahead. I, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it sounds as though um, Ricky d- would love to have a meal with you. Yeah, yeah. He, he actually says that in his email. He says that, it, uh, well, you want to read the rest of it, what it says? I'm trying to paraphrase it here, but I think uh, Ricky definitely wants to have a meal with you, which actually got me thinking, like, this could be a cool thing to set up is like we go to in Philly, we're going to say, here are the three restaurants that Bill wants. And then here are the three restaurants that fans vote for. And then we have like a taste off. Yeah. I mean, put this way. Any, any, anybody who listens to TBD and is willing to bring me to dinner, um, 
I'm in. Just just let you know that. So you, I'll I'll let uh, our 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 uh, our listeners know when I'm traveling. Once uh you know the COVID restrictions are lifted, I will be in Philadelphia quite a bit uh, once the COVID restrictions are lifted. So and also in New York City. So any of our um, listeners are looking to bring Bill to dinner. And maybe that's a new website, beingbuildadinner.com or dot or, get, or give a, a, you know, you have to try this. Like if we get yeah. X amount of voice. A hundred percent. But yeah, yeah. Look forward to uh, meals. So when next time, and I hopefully be going down to Philadelphia in, the, in mid-April. So I'll uh, shoot a thing out on Squash Radio and uh, maybe people could give me their suggestions and try something new. But if anybody in the Philadelphia is listening and wants to join me for some wings or a uh, little Han Dynasty next to Drexel or, or whatever the case may be, uh, all welcome. And, and I'll pay for half. Pay for my half. How about that? (laughs) So... So uh, another um, fan reached out, uh, Max Good from uh, Cleveland, Ohio. So Max has been a volunteer with the SEA, volunteering at Urban Squash Cleveland for a number of years. And when he was a younger uh, squash player, he's going to be on the squash team at Bates next year. But when he was a younger squash player, he befriended a city squash player named Caleb from the Bronx. And he and Caleb became good friends. Caleb is currently playing his squash at the Brunswick School in Greenwich, Connecticut. And uh, this summer, Max and Caleb are doing a bike-a-thon biking from the Squash Marts facility in Philly to the City Squashed facility in New York City and trying to raise money for the SEA. So it's going to be a, uh, a long bike ride from Philly to New York, and uh, they're going to raise money. So he had, was nice enough to send me an email. So we'll put the link up on the Squash Radio website. And again, Max, thanks for listening. And uh, best of luck to you and Caleb. It sounds like a, a long, arduous ride, but all for a good cause for sure. And speaking of Urban Squash Cleveland, you got an email uh, or a text from your former yeah. uh, teammate uh, who who was involved with Urban Squash Cleveland for a while. Max, I apologize for for not asking you in advance whether I could say this, but a different did... a different Max, by the way, two Maxes on the fan follow up this week. Two, two Maxes, yeah. yeah. So he said he's been also listening and enjoying our shows, Bill. But he he called you out, but also called basically calling me out a little bit because. You didn't know the Denison story of beating, almost beating Yale, or how good we were back in the day. I think it's a testament to your, humil- your humility, Connor. You never mentioned it to me in all the years we've known each other. <laughs> if I had done something like that, or was on a team that almost beat Yale, and I was the anchor of the team and self-professed best player on the team, and self-professed that the, the team has not been as good since I graduated, squash player like you are, you would know all about it. So uh, it, was, it was it was definitely new to me, but uh, it gives me a whole new appreciation uh, for the level of the squash you used to play before you became a old person like myself yeah well how good the team was i I was always battling for the last spot on the on the ladder who Um, who played number one for you guys then back then we had javier castilla ah uh uh-huh um we also had avis jesuel who was um both of them were all americans yeah we had we had some good talent all household names in the world of squash so there you go (laughs) (laughs) i thought Um, thought you might mention somebody i've heard of but no, no go um, well, it just shows how good we were, right? It's true. It's true. We, we, ragtag team out of Ohio. Exactly. No, but, um, and, and Max is so good about keeping the Denison story alive and going. Awesome. Well, uh, another good episode, Connor. Look forward to episode 11, episode 10 in the books. Um, any fan follow-up, squashradio at gmail.com. You could find me on Twitter at Buck Squash. Looking forward to uh, more Squash Radio. And as always, um, good night, Kaylee. See you, Connor. See you.